If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. If you like Inglorious Trexperts, you're going to love our new Trexperts briefing room where Darren and myself curate classic episodes of Star Trek with special guests from various Star Trek series talking about the episodes you love. I think that sounds great. Let's, well, I can't let's, wait to do it. Let's go see. What episodes are we doing, Darren? Well, I, we don't want to give it away. Okay. Well, then you need to watch Trexperts Briefing Room wherever you listen to Inglorious Trexperts and on the new Trexperts Briefing Room podcast feed. Don't miss it. Coming intermittently <laughs> in the coming weeks. Trexperts Briefing Room. It's what every real Trexpert needs. Hey, Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I, I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it, it's it's you know what I love about it's, the Electric Now app? It's better it's so on video. It's easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download the it. app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff, too. You go to the app store. It says Electric Now. You download it. And then it. in press, the United States, press the button. And there it is. There it is. And you can choose, you can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy and episodes of all your favorite electric surge podcasts. So why wait, download the electric now app and start enjoying us anytime. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Beautiful. Uh, we are very excited today. We, we're doing an episode that I'd say when we first started this podcast now uh, two years ago. Uh, this was definitely something we knew we would get to, I guess, because it's it's on, I, I don't know if you'd call it a short list of famous unmade movies, but it's definitely one that uh, I think has a lot of people are aware of it. Um, but it is also by a filmmaker that I very much like, but don't necessarily know that I know that much about or even can say I fully understand all their things. <laughs> so... Uh, we wanted to bring on some special guests to help us with that. The project we are talking about today is Ronnie Rocket, David Lynch's famous unmade movie. Um, and we thought this was a perfect time for a crossover with our friends over at the Pure Cinema podcast, who also this month are doing their own David Lynch series. Um, our guests here are Mr. Elric Kane and Brian Sauer. And why don't you guys introduce yourselves tell the audience who maybe doesn't know you a little about yourselves and so they can hear which voice belongs to whom 
Um, I'm Brian Sauer, uh, co-host of Pure Cinema. Uh, I do another podcast called Just the Dits. Um, generally movie obsessed and Blu-ray obsessed. And um, we've actually had both of you guys on our show, which is pretty cool. I'm pretty happy that we have. Hell yeah. Uh, I'm Elric Kane. Brian has never introduced to me the way you just introduced Steven. <laughs> like he's never ah. given me a rock and roll intro, which hurts. Uh, but the pressure and the bar has been lifted. Thank you for that, Josh. Uh, it has it. Nope. <laughs> I also do a, another podcast called Colors of the Dark, a horror podcast. And um, yeah, we, well, for us, for me, like Lynch is my favorite director. It's the, it's the director who made me want to make movies, um, you know, at a pretty young age. And and I, and I definitely read this 20 years ago. <laughs> I hadn't thought much about it since. Um, so I, this, of all the episodes, this is kind of the one I always probably bookmarked in my mind that I would want to do with you guys. So uh, this should be fun. And over on Pure Cinema, yeah, so we're, we've got a two-part um, series on David Lynch where we uh, look at every single one of his feature films from his career, including, and we make a couple pit stops at some of the you know key shorts or key forays into TV, but we pair all of his feature films with films we think would make for interesting pairings. Um, and that's kind of our angle. You know, we're not necessarily the deep dive we're going to completely analyze every Lynch film. I think that's the other podcasts. That's their kind of their shtick. Ours is definitely much more about movies talking to each other, but it's, Hey, it's six, six hours and each episode's about <laughs> almost three each. And that's his whole career. So uh, we definitely are in the Lynch mindset right now. So well, I, I was going to say for those listeners who uh, are maybe unfamiliar, how would you really describe pure cinema? And also we talk a little bit about now it's relationship uh, with the new Beverly cinema which I think is one of those things that we in LA take for granted that every single film fan out there is well aware of what the new Beverly cinema is. Yeah. I mean, well, I can just talk about this first part and, and then we can tie, you can maybe tie it to the new Bev. I mean, we started, we did a couple of years as just a kind of, I guess we'd call it almost a cult movie podcast. You know, basically every episode is fairly evergreen. We'd kind of stayed away from talking about things that are happening in our lives and modern things, modern films, and really kept it to a topic-based list of five movies because that was kind of us picking five films on any topic. That That's the origin. It then kind of branched out into uh, pairing director's work, uh, double feature shows, but it's always been more or less around underseen cult movies and things that um, kind of the outer bounds of all movies. Yeah, no, and it, it's sort of also born out of a mutual love for Danny Perry. For those that don't know, he's a, he's a, an author film critic that wrote some books in the early 1980s. They're called cult movies. He did three volumes. He also did one called guide for the film fanatic. And I actually, I had gotten to know Elric prior to interviewing. I'm, I'm actually slowly working on a documentary about Danny Perry. And I interviewed Elric years ago for it. And I think it was out of that interview. The show was kind of born, you know, we just got a sense that we could talk to each other and then, you know, we did it for a couple of years and we had a couple of different networks. And then we finally, um, you know, sort of lined up with the new Beverly. And it's been just an incredible serendipitous match for us to be, you know, sort of their show. You know, it's it's we are fully aligned with them and we take that very seriously and we are honored by it. And and I guess the, the, the key relationship there is we do a when the theater is open again, hopefully soon, uh, we would break down all the movies that are on a calendar list with a guest. So basically the calendar uh, for this incredible retro uh, cinema 
uh, would come out, we would break down all the films, uh, you know, the majority of which are picked by Quentin Tarantino himself programming the film. Um, there's some matinees and other midnight shows programmed as, in addition to that. And it's always been an institution in L.A., like since 1977, Eight? 78. Yeah, 78. Um, and, you know, so it's so we take that on and it's fun. And that's the kind of episode that Josh was on, you know, helping us break down and kind of make sense of this calendar. Yeah, I was like going to say, map. <laughs> uh, I was on with my wife, KJ, who's a programmer at the UCLA Film and Television Archive. And we had the dubious honor of being on the final one of those episodes. Oh my gosh, COVID that's right. Shut the theater down mid-month. Our month was March 2020. Oh, so you were the month that didn't get all the films. Right. Yep, Interesting. Exactly. I forgot that. That's crazy. That's kind of cool because here we are in March again recording for April. No, that's neat. I didn't even put that together. You guys were the last calendar. That's cool. Um, we're both very excited for the theater to eventually. I, I've actually been uh, holding back on my urge to rewatch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because mm -hmm. I'm like, well, you know that the moment the theater's open, Quentin's going to be splashing that movie all over there. And uh, my wife and I usually have a ritual. We go to El Coyote. Uh, beforehand, which for those who've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it was fun then when that was featured in the film and they kind of uh, offhandedly referenced the theater, which is like <laughs> having a porno premiere down the street. Uh, it was a I cute moment, part. except for then El Coyote was so popular for months that like we couldn't actually go there before <laughs> seeing a movie. I'm still Fenton. hoping for the whole bloody affair to be first screening. I would also say uh, yeah, that's my hope one of my favorite things involving Steven Scarlatta ever occurred on your podcast when Quentin Tarantino was one of your episodes and fucking <laughs> called Steve out and his apparently shit taste over uh, shark exploitation. I, okay. I, let's not, I don't think, I don't know if that's, you know, he, he just likes to, you know, he likes to take issue occasionally, but I think it's done in the, in this, my initial take is always like, Oh my God, he doesn't like something we said. And then you talk to him and it feels like, no, actually he just wants to have a conversation about it more oh, like yeah, it felt it felt fun loving yeah but. absolutely he, he's a video store want, guy just like all of us he I was a video steve to think he was coming down i thought it was kind of no, cute steve that he was thrilled <laughs> yeah well at first i felt kind of bad and no. then it kind of hit me because i kept i was had to reach out to you guys oh my god but then i was you know then people were reaching out i can't believe he mentioned you and then it was an honor you know Wait, it was, what, was it cruel jaws or was it great white i i prefer cruel jaws over great white and I mean, listen, Great White, I like, and it's a much better looking movie. It's beautiful, but I just love the madness and insanity of Cruel Jaws. Plus, you know, it was before Severin put it out. No one was, not as many people were talking about it. And so- But you made but, you one know, critical error. You, you mentioned the one that doesn't have Vic Morrow in it. And that's know, that, so when it comes to Quentin, we learned he's a Vic Morrow fan, so. Well, I, Quentin should be happy that, I mean, right behind Steve's head there is a great mm -hmm. white poster. Yeah, so. yeah I love it. And <laughs> Tintorera, good stuff. Hugo uh, Stiglitz. Anyway, uh, our audience might be like, what, what are they talking about <laughs> shark movies? Um, so let's uh, trust me, that will be the easiest part of this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is a great way to segue into Ronnie Rocket and back to Lynch. Because um, you already kind of teed up, and this is why we thought you guys would be great to have on, that uh, Lynch is important to you. Um, and... I wouldn't say he's important to me. I, th I think anyone who really likes movies, how can you not like a handful of Lynch movies? They're just so cinematic. And for a guy who actually has such a very specific weird thing 
his filmography is fairly diverse when you look at things like Eraserhead to Elephant Man to Dune to Blue Velvet, like even just that little cluster there. Um, there's a lot of similarities connecting them all. A little bit less Dune, but um, still <laughs> yeah, very mean, much Dune. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the one thing we really try to do. I think that more than deep dive on the on the episodes we've just done it was kind of just looking at the connections and how one film leads to the next which i think will tie really well into this because you know the biggest thing i said after reading this to brian just before he started is like if he had made this i don't think we would have he would have the cultural relevance that he does because the fact that everyone was talking about his the latest twin peaks like everybody even people who didn't see it were talking about it to think of the relevance from a razorhead you know, 40 years ago to, to now to be that relevant for 40 years and, and to be that avant-garde is mind blowing for a career. Right. And to have Oscar Oscar type films pop up through that as well as those. So it's kind of crazy, but I think in a lot of ways, Ronnie rocket to me is like a double down on a razor head. It's like double down on the, the industrial and strange comic. And so had he made that instead of elephant man, I, I think because it would have been a more expensive movie, it could have been career ending. Unlike, unlike Dune, which could have career ended, but didn't, it actually led to his best work. So it's, it's a real fascinating career there. I honestly don't think there's another American artist like it because Scorsese is a different kind of filmmaker. Right? He's like, he's one of the best filmmakers, but he's, but he isn't pushing the um, kind of the boundaries of what a movie is in the way that Lynch did and is still doing, you know, even on YouTube he's doing and with the reports he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, not to get too much ahead of things, because Steve will obviously walk us through some of the history, but uh, you hit upon what I think is most unique about this compared to a lot of the other things we talk about is so often, like, for example, we wrote an article for Fangoria that's about George Romero trying to make Stephen King's The Stand. And that one's more tragic because um, you more imagine if he'd made that, even if it wasn't a big hit, that's the thing people kind of forget. When you're such a smaller filmmaker like David Lynch, even making a big, like, I don't want to say turd quality wise, but a big bomb like Dune, that still like elevated him so high under what kind of filmmaker he was even considered Dune didn't even need to be a big hit for us to get a smaller movie again, like blue velvet. Cause now he was, now he was really David Lynch. Uh, so with like Romero, you kind of look at like, Oh man, if he'd made this huge budget movie at the end of the eighties, which when you look at his filmography is sadly where you can kind of see his budgets keep getting smaller and smaller. And he has to kind of, you know, he didn't want to make more living dead movies and kind of just has to keep going back to that. Well, cause those are the only things he could get money for. As you're saying, saying if he'd made this instead of elephant man, he wouldn't have gotten Dune. If he hadn't gotten Dune, he might not have gotten Blue Velvet. And it's like, oh, who he, even knows what his career would have looked like? Yeah, you know? I, I mean, I... What were you going to say, mean, Brian? Sorry, oh, sorry I, I was going to say, he definitely wouldn't have gotten Blue Velvet because that relationship between Dino De Laurentiis and him establishes with Dune and carries through to Blue Velvet. That doesn't happen. There's just, I don't think... I mean, maybe he gets on Dino's radar some other way, but I, I just don't see how. And I don't see how you get in the position where Dino lets you make that movie unless you've done some giant thing like dune that was a really arduous task and you know i think we talk about it in the episode but i think he pulls off something interesting with what he does do with it um whether it's faithful or not to the source material no, but, i mean yeah. that is a yeah. guy say what you will about the movie um as like a overall beginning and experience uh it's it's very 
skillfully put together all the decisions he's making on its like look and feel that again feels like somebody who's really in complete control of their craft it was maybe just the kind of the kind of storytelling that needed to be because they were hyping it at the time is this is star wars for like adults serious <laughs> cinephiles uh but you know it's still a movie that expensive needs to be accessible to a certain you know, huge segment of the population. Otherwise, uh, it's it's just not going to make enough money. For me, it's like, it's, it's probably my favorite Lynch movie because it changed my life. It's like after Return of the Jedi came out, there was this empty hole that I, of no more Star Wars and it was hyped as the next Star Wars. And, you know, I rented it as a kid, taped it on Betamax. I thought I was supposed to like it. So I watched it. I can't tell you how many times I watched it growing up because I, and it's the first movie I guess I ever rewatched multiple times. And I kept thinking I was understanding it, but I wasn't because I hadn't read the book. But I just think it's incredible. And then when you really look into it with David Lynch, first off, it's also his first color movie, you know. And, you know, even if he made um, Ronnie Rocket after Elephant Man, that would have been like three black and white movies in a row. Also, and so for it to be his first color movie and what he plays with in it, and what I just find fascinating is when you read about it, originally he wanted to do it in two parts, but they wouldn't let him. And that's what they're doing now. And then his true version of it never came out. It was supposed to come out. And then, you know, there's so much on the cutting room floor, too. So we never to this day seen his Dune. We saw the theatrical version, which has his name on it, and it's amazing what he pulled off in that limited time with the film but like first they wouldn't make him do it in two parts he wrote like like maybe five six seven drafts of it and i think what the thing that hurts me the most is the fact that he wasn't able to make it in two parts his version wasn't able to come out we never got to see his next dune which he was going to have full control over and he would have been you know completely went lynch out with it because what I love about it, it's like Star Wars is so used to machinery and like computer graphics, but it's like a world without any of that. It's so surreal. And the field navigator, you know, like he, he's the one, you know, there is no hyperspace to go through. Look what you have to use to go, you know, to time travel. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. I, I don't know, man. I think I love, Dune so much. I can't <laughs> well, I think even... we, we got a more appreciation for it on this watch. I think we both discussed. I think the stuff you're talking about cult with color and is very interesting with that film, how each family and each kind of a group has their own kind of color palette and sense of style. But I'll tell you the biggest thing about that movie, uh, Brian's completely right about Dino, but the other number one thing that it is, and it's the, you know, if you teach or anything like that, it's the easiest advice to give and the hardest to take, which is failure right because it's actually not a box office failure everyone thinks it is but it actually made its money back and then a little bit more it's not a massive failure right it is a critical failure overall it's seen that way but it actually kind of made its money but uh, it's about like he lost uh director's cut and that changes Mm -hmm. his entire career because not a single time after this did he give up director's cut he and he talks about is is the single most important thing to him is to know that you get to make the film you want to make and and knowing that you can't have had the career he had without having that that burn without being hurt like that because he eats very personal to him you can hear the pain in his voice even now when he talks about it's not so much that he hates the movie he he hates that it's not done 
for him yeah, the way yeah. he wants. And, and I think that's a really powerful lesson to take away is like, yeah, that we wouldn't have gotten that blue vote. We wouldn't get these movies that he still holds on to. Uh, so I think that's, that's something that's definitely, you know, important with that. And when I look at, you know, when we, as we get into Ronnie, it's, it's like, yeah, this would have been a lot like Razor, but some of the angles, and it was a, you know, long script, some of them, some of the kind of tangents you can already see being pared down for a film, like what would probably get cut out. But then you're like, what is it? I don't know. I'm still wrapping my head around this one. <laughs> and we just watched all his movies. Um, well, maybe this is a good time to just jump right into the history, Steve. Okay. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through the history to get us up to the draft we have. And um, yeah, so first we're going to start off with in March 17th, 1977, Race Ahead is released. And off of this, um, it's gaining like a big uh, buzz off of midnight uh, screenings. And in June 1977, this is from his book, Lynch gets married to his second wife, Mary Fisk. And a few days later, he registers a treatment for Ronnie Rocket. And as a wedding present, his dad buys him this fixer up a house in Riverside. So while his wife works in L.A., he kind of moves to Riverside. And during the day, he works on this house with his dad. And every night he writes 10 pages of Ronnie Rocket before he goes to sleep. So when the house is complete and sold, he makes five grand, but he has written 300 pages of Ronnie Rocket. <laughs> and that's where the writing of it came down. And then um, eventually he meets agent Marty Michelson of the William Morris Agency to secure financing for Ronnie Rocket, but is unsuccessful. And he says around this time, I did get one meeting. I met with a producer over at Universal Studios, one who had one kind of, he had one hit film and he heard something about Eraserhead. He brought me in and said, what do you got? And I said, I got a story called Ronnie Rocket. And he said, what's it about? And I said, it's about a guy who's three feet tall, has a red pompadour and runs on alternating current electricity. And the guy said to leave his office. <laughs> then he met Stuart Kornfeld, who saw a midnight showing of a race the head at the new art and was completely blown away by it. And he wanted to produce Ronnie Rocket. And again, they couldn't get any interest in it. But Kornfeld, you know, is the guy that says, hey, I got four scripts do you want to pick one of these and maybe you can direct something you haven't written and then um he was also working for mel brooks at the time cornfeld and that's where he gets uh, elephant man and so elephant man comes out in october 1980 and again lynch tries to get ronnie rocket off the ground and at, oh so while he was working on elephant man he met one of the cast members uh dexter fletcher he was one of the boys in the movie, and he was also Babyface in Bugsy Malone, which I know was one of Rupert's favorites. But um, wait, and this I, is the director, Dexter Fletcher, now a no, director, a, the guy who came to do cleanup on Bohemian Rhapsody. I don't think so. I know he's no. in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoke. Oh no, it is barrels. that guy. Oh, it is him. Yeah. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. And then yeah, he directed Rocket Man. Check that out. Yeah. So he was a kid at the time and he was, that's who he was looking at to play the elephant man. Uh, when I finished elephant man, I met Richard Roth, the producer of a 1977 movie, Julia. We had coffee and he told me had I read the, he read the script for Ronnie rocket. He liked it, but he said it wasn't his cup of tea. And then eventually he kind of, he kind I, of got, I can only imagine someone reading this script in that context <laughs> and just being like, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
And then he asked David Lynch if he had any of the scripts and David Lynch kind of gave him like a little pitch that I told him I always wanted to sneak into a girl's room and watch her into the night. And I would see something that wouldn't that would be the clue of a murder mystery. And Roth loved the idea and asked him to write a treatment. And then Lynch said, I went home and then thought of the ear in the field of blue velvet. Mm. And then seven years later, he would, you know, Roth would be one of the producers on blue velvet. All right, so back to 1980, um, American Zoetrope, Francis Ford Coppola's company. You can hear a little bit about that in our interface uh, uh, episode. But Francis Ford Coppola brings Ronnie Rocket and uh, David Lynch into the studio and tries to get it off the ground. And Lynch said um, he had an office at his studio and every once in a while, um, Coppola would ask him to come over and tell me the story of Ronnie Rocket. And Francis, David Lynch said, Francis is a strange guy. He would sit down with his eyes closed and I would tell him the story like a bedtime story. And as we know, I love that, love that image. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then eventually, uh, Zoetrope will fall into financial trouble with one from the heart, and he would have to leave. And then Return of the Jedi pops up. And George Lucas, uh, this is from Lynch again, George Lucas got in touch with me at the same time Dino did. And I had to make an important decision. George was great. He's a living legend. I was really fond of him. I realized that his projects are entirely his projects and I prefer to do my own. In George's imagination, the movie was already done. It would have made the difference. It wouldn't have made the difference with me doing it. It would have looked exactly the same. And he also said, because it's George Lucas's film, he had already designed these little bears. He had already <laughs> done all this stuff. You know, little I would have just been a puppet on George, you know, George's, I would have just been George's puppet on a string. So, you know, so whenever people bring up, you know, David Lynch's Return of the Jedi, it's not like. Yeah, we never would have gotten to see that. movie. There is no David Lynch's Return of the Jedi. Pretty much, you know, but it seems like Dino De Laurentiis for Dune, when you watch Dune, not to keep talking about it, you could really see Lynch's aesthetic in that movie, into that world. And so now May 31st, 1981, David Lynch is attached to direct Dune for Dino De Laurentiis. And Stuart Kornfeld, who got him the job on The Elephant Man, said, when David and I met, the plan was to do Ronnie Rocket, but we couldn't make it happen because the people thought David was a nut at that point. <laughs> that changed after The Elephant Man. We had a shot to get Ronnie Rocket made. Then one day, David and I had lunch, and David told me Dino De Laurentiis offered Dune and a fat paycheck. David is a guy in his 30s who did great art and got nothing. So when Dino said he was going to give him everything he wanted, he went for it. And 1982, January 1st, um, David Lynch was attached to direct Red Dragon for a moment. And that's and um, Wallen Green was going to write the adaptation. And uh, Wallen Green, I believe, he also wrote the unproduced uh, Crusade draft. Um, but, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't it be funny if that's where the thing um, coming for you, sport? I can see David Lynch saying sport. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, sport. Coming for you, sport. <laughs> that's where it gets a Manhunter. I love Manhunter. Yeah, he says, I was involved in that for a little bit, but I got sick of it. I was going into a world that was going to be, for me, real violent and completely degenerate. One of those things, no redeeming qualities. And so 1983, March 83 to September 83, Lynch shoots Dune. 
And then December 16th, 1983, Dino De Laurentiis is announced he will produce Ronnie Rocket. And they are in post-production, you know, they're finishing Dune in post. And then three days later, Variety announces that Carlo Rambaldi will create the will create Ronnie Rocket. And he did the oh, wow. To the people that don't know, uh, Carlo Rambaldi did the creature for ET. And, and so position. Oh yeah, there you go. That's why I came. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just want to talk about position. Uh, well, and that's also been... who the Rambaldi device is named after on J.J. Abrams' show, Alias. Hmm. <laughs> but it would have been interesting to see at that moment in December 83 what Ronnie Rocket was going to be. Was it going to be an actor? Was it going to be some type of creature he was creating? Um, all right, 1984, February, Starburst Magazine. Um he says, uh, I understand that David Lynch's Dune contract calls for him to make three more films, but Lynch is planning his own fun film, Ronnie Rocket. He calls it a poor man's effect movie, and he's back in monochrome. I love color, but there's nothing like black and white, David Lynch says. And we're going to fast forward to October 1984, and... Um, Lynch is still talking about Ronnie Rocket. Uh, Ronnie Rocket is a movie I'd like to do next if I get the chance. And uh, November 1984, De Laurentiis, um, um, yeah, now it's announced that future projects will be Blue Velvet, Ronnie Rocket, and Dune Messiah. And then Dune is released that December, and now pretty much any sequel of Dune is kind of thrown out the window. Um, and... Uh, and again, February 1985, he's talking about doing Ronnie Rocket as his next film or a new movie called Blue Velvet. March 1985, um, again, David Lynch's next project will be Ronnie Rocket. But a few months after that announcement, Blue Velvet goes into production. 1986, September, Blue Velvet is released. And now this is my theory where the draft we're going to go get into is because uh, the first draft that's, a, that's circulating online, it's spelled R-O-N-N-Y, Ronnie. And when you look back at like Fangoria, when um, Lynch was in there for the Elephant Man, that's the way Ronnie was spelled. And kind of the interviews before 1979 or before 1980, Ronnie is spelled R-O-N-N-Y. And my theory that this is the draft we're reading right now is because now in like October, 1986, Whenever he brings up Ronnie Rocket, he always says it's about the absurd mystery of the strange forces of existence. And that's what the, now the title is for Ronnie Rocket, which is now spelled R-O-N-N-I-E. So, yeah, and I, I will say for, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get go through the script, but I mean... David Lynch is the exact kind of filmmaker that you can't just read their scripts. Like I feel if David Lynch had never made a movie before and you probably read the script to any of his movies, you'd just be like, does this person even know what a movie is? Like this is complete garbage. Uh, you, you need to see the finished version and how he sees it in his head, how he, the cadences he wants the actors to deliver some of these crazy lines. 
that said, it's it, knowing his, like we have all seen enough Lynch movies now that it, you can, if you have that context, when you do read this, you can't help but filter it oh, through some sure. of that. So, but if you hadn't seen his movies, it would make no sense. But, but, but like every character can kind of come to life and the, some of the absurdities, you can kind of see them for good and bad. There's some stuff that I didn't like because I could see it away of parts of his films that I don't like as much as other parts. It was yeah. weird, weird. <laughs> but it makes sense now that you're contextualizing this with Blue Velvet in a sense being maybe the killer of this project permanently because I feel like once you make a film of Blue Velvet's like prestige, even though Elephant Man is prestigious, but it was somebody else's project that you directed, but Blue Velvet's yours. How do you go back from that, right? Like you're on a new train, like yeah, especially, a whole different world. Especially with, I mean, I can't, you know, be sure that I totally understand his intentions with some of these things, but there definitely seems to be a lot more broad comedy moments. And, and not that he isn't a guy who I think is, maybe for better or for worse, not known for comedy when I think he actually injects comedy into almost everything he does. Um, I think a lot of people think because he's so weird, he can't, I mean, he can't mean it to be funny sometimes, you know, like, cause he's an artist or whatever. I don't know what the interpretation is, but, <laughs> but yeah, seeing some of these scenes, I'm like, this is so much broader and not, I love broad comedy. So that's fine for me, or it feels broad, or I, I'm trying to even interpret what it would look like through the lynched lens, but also still feeling like there's a lot of broad comedy in here. And yeah, like you say, Eric, it would be a weird, I don't want to say step back, but in, in the minds of, I think a lot of viewers, it might be some kind of a re regression. I don't know. I, it would just be an odd step away from where he's headed with blue velvet. No, Well, and I think that's, what's kind of interesting when you look at the full arc of his career. And you see that, I think with a lot of filmmakers or musicians or however you want to think about it is you kind of start to evolve and you reach this point. And then sometimes towards the end, it's that's when you really start to kind of dip back down. And I would not, his movies never became mainstream, but I do think uh, it's probably easier for the average person to get into something like blue velvet than uh, inland empire or some of his like latter career stuff. And you know, the, uh, twin the Showtime version of Twin Peaks is possibly the most insane thing he's ever made, which is saying something. And uh, I, I, that's, I guess, how I was looking at it is that it's kind of like it almost been like if he'd done Twin Peaks uh, right the or this most recent season right after the initial show. I think everyone's brains would have just melted. You kind of had to go with him on the journey through Lost Highway and Mulholland Falls and Inland Empire. Um, and we'll talk about, like, as we go, like how little pieces of this aesthetic oh, do scatter. This very much home. reminded me of the, like, tonal shifts uh, on... Wait, it's Twin Peaks The Return, right? Yeah, The Return. The like how you get... Well, also Episode 8, right? The, the, the infamous Episode 8 is black and white, so it's one of the first times he shot anything longer than a short in black and white post uh, Elephant Man and also just some of the mechanical um, industrial stuff in that episode is as close as I think we'll probably see. That said, I think he could make Ronnie Rocket as its final. I know he won't, but if it was going to make a final film, that's the place that would to, be fitting. Yeah, right. Yeah, you could end with that because there's no expectations anymore. You just well, and I guess that was sort of my do. greater point is now where he's gone back to, it would feel like, yes, this would be the perfect yeah. way for him to close his career out. If he'd done this after Blue Velvet, it would have just been like, whoa, um, he's like, got the honorary Oscar now. He got that honorary Oscar yeah. last year or the year before, so um, he, he can do whatever he wants. And get back to my very original point I was trying to make to the audience before I got sidetracked on my own was <laughs> uh, 
these are both very available online. We're only going to be talking really in depth on the second script, which is the ones we gave Elric and Brian to read. I'll highlight a little bit the differences, but um, if, if you're a big fan, you should check them out. You'll get more out of actually reading because there's like some of, there's so much blocking in certain sections that I'm not even going to try to get into. Uh, but it is very interesting, I think, for fans to just kind of read. And again, you can really hear his voice, even in just how he writes just sentences that the audience isn't ever going to, you know, really see. Um, and to that end, part of why I'm not, we didn't really want to go into both scripts is that I feel the Ronnie Rocket storyline. Uh, the story follows basically Ronnie Rocket character and a character just called the detective. Um, and the detective storyline is the only one that's notably different between the two. And it does get pretty different in parts, but just kind of overall, the movie is is basically the same, I think, in what he was kind of going for and the look he was going for. Um, but I guess before we dig in, does, does anyone have sort of big picture thoughts well, I guess Especially I just, based on that you've gone through and watched all his movies. I was wondering if Steve, after, after Blue Verbal, did he like in the nineties, did this keep coming up? He just, it just, it just at a certain point, they just said this isn't happening. Um, when we finish going through his draft, I'm going to go through. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to finish close the history out. of it. Yeah. I'll close this out where, you know, we'll take it from there. Actually, there's quite a bit. You'll see. I mean, it kind of, okay. it, 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 I'll, I'll put it as this is the it's always like his next movie in a way. Yeah. And yeah. then, but there's little hints put, put in there after certain movies, but like I said, yeah, we'll touch on that after. Um. So, so Josh, you were saying that the detective stuff comes in and later, like the original drafts. It's oh, just no, sorry. The wrong... uh, in both scripts, this movie, it's kind of, you call it two-hander, you know, one, yeah. two storylines about the detective and about Ronnie, and we kind of cut back and forth. And in both scripts, I feel the Ronnie Rocket storyline uh, is very similar. I mean, to the point where he almost didn't even change a single word in certain scenes. It's the detective storylines that are different, but it's not like uh, really a whole different story is happening. It's more just like uh, he's kind of condensed or expanded characters or kind of gives them different side adventures i mean this this is a movie even walking through it i still kind of find it hard to really like summarize what's going on because it's david lynch so there's a whole other thing that would really be going on watching it based on just talking about what happens makes the movie sound again like this person doesn't even know what a movie is <laughs> a lot of sense <laughs> i mean in the first draft i think he only uh the detective only fondles i think one pair of breasts and oh in the second draft we get so up to like much... the or seventh breast. It's like a drinking uh, game. It's How many? so much breast fondling. Really interesting because it's, you know, that's one of the things that makes Lynch so interesting is he has uh, got a lot of sexuality and a lot of sexual things in his movies, but they all seem stunted at the age of like 14 for the most part. Like Mulholland Drive is the one that feels a little bit more adult, you know, mm -hmm. but most of them feel like a 14 year old boy version of sex who's watching and still scared. I mean, I think that comes through in almost all these movies and in this big time because there's no below the way sex, right? There's no touching. It's <laughs> yeah. just, it's just somebody exposed their boobs. And so <laughs> I don't think it's trivial to mention. I think it's a big kind of part that goes through this well, because he's so interested. I, really, in I want to mention, I'm going to mention it every single time it happens in the script because yeah. I, I do feel it's the kind <laughs> of thing. Uh, I mean, really like any sort of joke where it starts to not be funny after a while and then it just keeps going. And by the end, you're like, oh my God, I just can't believe how many 
and then she exposes her breasts moments <laughs> there are in his way. But anyway, to start um, things out, I'm just going to read the first couple paragraphs here to give you the tonal imagery we got going on. So this is how it opens up. Black, fade to a giant stage, enormous with black curtains open. It is hard to resist just doing like a <laughs> Lynch voice. I'm going to be like Francis Coppola. I'm going to close my eyes and you're going to tell yeah. me that story. <laughs> the entire stage <laughs> is filled with a wall of fire 200 feet high. Within the fire are thousands of souls screaming out silently. Only the roaring of the fire fade out. There is a dark land where mysteries and confusions abound, where fear and terror fly together in troubled cities of absurdities. Black clouds race over a soot-covered city where it is darkest night. Only a few tiny yellow squares of light in the old buildings and factories. Everything is so dark. Very little life is noticed except the tiny dark yellow squares. There are no cars seen from this high angle looking down over the city. No people out this night. Uh, and then there's like two whole pages of just kind of nonstop text. Uh, but we go into a hospital where we meet our detective who's never identified by name, who's standing over um, a guy, Ronald DeArt. Is that how you guys were saying it in your mind? Ronald DeArt, maybe? Yeah, something like that. It's Ronald D-E space A-R-T-E. He's French-Canadian. Um, yeah, or Darte. <laughs> um who is on a hospital bed and he's like all fucked up and like covered in a sheet. And we don't really know why the detective's there talking to him. And it's saying Ronald's just like contorted and misshapen again under the sheet. Uh, it's like he's injured. We don't quite know what's going on. Uh, he's making high pitched whines and knocking his head on the table near a pencil, which leaps with every hit that lets the detective know that Ronald now requires a pencil with which to write. Ronald very shakily scribbles out the following symbols and all the while makes very long high pitched whines. And then what's interesting is, is in the script, Lynch draws the symbols that we see. We'll post a picture of this on uh, Twitter and Instagram. But what I think is interesting is the symbols are completely different in each of the two scripts. So I don't know <laughs> what they really meant to him and what changed. Uh, and because I'm sure he put a lot of thought if he drew this in the script. Uh, it almost reminds me of like in a Kurt Vonnegut book, you know, where he'll <laughs> just have like a little drawing of a butthole or whatever. Uh, and Vonnegut would scribble it out. Uh, and then now this is where our two characters diverge and our real stories begin. Uh, and the crazy symbolism that we all must need to try to puzzle through what it all means begins because the detective gets on a train and he's going into what they keep calling just the inner city. Uh, and when a conductor on the train uh, is basically like, you know, you don't want to go in there. And this is the general idea that you're not allowed in there. Um, and again, it's like, how do you even like sum some of this stuff up? But uh, the important relationship the detective gets, especially in this script, it's a little bit different than the other one that we didn't read through, is a guy named Terry. There's two people on the train, Terry and Bill. We don't see Bill for a while, but we get the idea that Bill's very scary and dangerous. Uh, and Terry's like an old man uh, and he's got a sore on his leg that he's always kind of like itching and slapping with a fly swatter. Kind of reminded me of Chop Top and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, picking at his like scalp injury with a coat hanger. 
Um, and we established two important things about our detective here and this weird world of the uh, inner city. Oh, because the detective is like, I'm trying to remember if he says the name this early on, but basically, uh, I guess it doesn't really matter what order we're explaining some of this. He's trying to find a guy named uh, Hank Bartles. Again, I'm not sure, or Bartels. Um, we'll just call him Hank, uh, who runs the inner city has the power of electricity and all this, but we established the two important things about our detective here. Most importantly is he can stand on one leg, which is basically a superpower in this weird inner city world. Um, and he's often asked, you know, people like prove it and he'll stand on one leg and everyone gets very impressed. And he can <laughs> recount the detective mantra. I was just going to say the detective motto, <laughs> which is, is yeah. stay alert, concentrate, stay clean. Uh, feels very lynchy. That's something I can even imagine his character from Twin Peaks mm -hmm. yeah. screaming at uh, Kyle MacLachlan. Um, and uh, did you guys have any, feel free to jump in anytime if there's something you remember from any of these particular sequences or sections of the movie. Like well, again, was... yeah, what were you guys even thinking at this point in the movie? <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously the, the story kind of shifts a bit when we get, not to get ahead of ourselves, but when we get more into the Ronnie stuff. But the beginning, I was just like, wow, this feels like Dark City. This yeah. feels like... I, very oh. much Dark City. Vibes. And the Donut Men too. do too. The Donut Men feel right? like Dark City characters, yeah. Yeah, like, and it's one of those things, Steve, like maybe you know, I don't know how available this script might have been i would assume it would have been accessible enough that alex Proyas could have read it i'm not saying he ripped it off but it's one of those things where you read it and you go wow there's just so so much in it that you know the noir stuff which is definitely a thing that comes up in lynch's work again and again but the industrial you know i mean you know he he cites the city of philadelphia as like one of the biggest influences on eraserhead and he obviously had this I don't know, incredibly formative and visceral experience or experiences in that city when he moved from like, you know, his, I guess, relatively sheltered suburban uh, upbringing to this, I, you know, horror movie of a city as far as he's concerned. Uh, like what happened to Lynch in Philadelphia is what I kept thinking <laughs> because, you know, you see it in Eraserhead and you see it in, in Elephant Man to a degree. There's some of that stuff, the industrial stuff there. It kind of continues through his work whatever happened to him there or however he was influenced stayed with him for a long time. And so like, he's still really in the thick of it. I think when he's writing this, um, but yeah, I just couldn't help but think what happened, man. What was, I, wonder, what, no, what, I, think, what, I think you're right about some that. greasers do to yeah. Stephen King when he was a kid. That's what <laughs> exactly. I always think. Well, I know <laughs> Sorry, like, Steve, what he's like, no, I know he bought a house there and it got broken into numerous times. I think like wow. one night he had like a, like he was using like a sword as protection. Like people were, people were shot and killed in front of his house, you know, it was, and um, yeah, I think yes, this was this in the inner city and how, and how dangerous it is, is definitely parts of him like back then living at that house and what he was dealing with. The, the and where he's from, right? Like if you're from yeah. somewhere like middle America, yeah, and you go there, you might stay inside a lot. That could could also shape your vision. It's like the ex outside world is scary. It's yeah. dark, you know. Yeah. Well, he and bought also this huge house for like no money, and it was just in this the worst part of town, pretty much. Mm. Uh, yeah, no, I could. That's really interesting. I never heard the break-in stories. That totally makes sense. But what lines up for me in some ways is the violence in his films sometimes comes out of nowhere, where you're just like you feel like maybe Lynch felt observing some of the violent acts that he may have been 
witness to you just this idea of like things are from his point of view it's relatively i mean often it starts weird but in a way sometimes it's very sort of um straightforward and down to earth for a minute and then suddenly a crazy wild character like a dennis hopper character in blue velvet this tornado of a character comes in i do feel like there's definitely some uh ties to the dennis hopper character in blue velvet and a couple of the other very evil sort of villain characters that come into his movies um in this in this script but i do think again i feel like I don't know. Something happened where, you know, he witnessed <laughs> some really bad people and he, for some reason was so affected by that experience that he's like, I'm going to bring that into my films and I'm going to allow people to experience that feeling of like, Oh my God, what is happening? What is this violence? You know, this is, this is scarring, you know, in a way it's not like he was out to scar people. I don't think, but there is the idea that this is a guy who was moved in and sort of, influenced so deeply by whatever these experiences were that he brought it into his art and continually brings it in. And I think that's here too. No, I think, no, that's a very, it's a very good point. Let me see. Do I have this here? Um, I know he mentioned like, I went to Philadelphia to attend art school. At first I lived in a house in an industrial area where everyone left at five o'clock, except those who lived at the pub next door. We were on our own and it was dark and in a dark industrial area. I've heard stories about murder and manslaughter. Then I moved to another place, a very bad place. So yeah, so it looks like he was like moved around to some very dark places. And I heard... picked LA afterwards, he loves the light. Well, I just yeah. I also, hmm. well, definitely that's a really good point, Alric. He does, that totally lines up too. But the idea of just little understatements like that, a very bad place. What does that mean? What is <laughs> what is a bad place in David Lynch's mind? I'm not saying the man is demented or depraved in any way, but obviously we've seen what he can bring to the screen when he thinks bad. So uh, what is a bad place? And that is just really intriguing to me, you know? Oh, and to go back on your point about Dark City um, to just quickly say the the men that what you're also referring to are these uh these figures now out of the darkness comes a group of men wearing black woolen overcoats black hats gloves and boots they stomp their feet up and down and so and slowly surround and move closer to the detective yeah that totally gives the vibe of those guys in mr Dark hand City. yeah i don't remember yeah. what they're called but i know the main one's mr hand played by uh the great um uh, from last picture, uh, last Rocky Horror Picture Show, of course. Uh, I can't believe Brian or wait, uh, Richard O'Brien. Yeah, Richard yeah. O'Brien uh, is great in that. But yeah, I think no, I think that description is exactly the image that uh, grew in my head. I mean, the other thing I was thinking about, I think this is often the case if you're reading a script uh, of something you want to see, like not a friend script, you start to instantly cast it a little bit. You know, you're trying to go, well, who is this person? And even though I don't think it is who the detective would have been because they talk about how good looking he is, but my version of this kept going Harry Dean Stanton as the detective, but he mm. could have obviously been Terry, right? Like I was thinking Jack Nance or somebody is Terry, you know, somebody a little wild and woolly. But yeah. I love the idea of Harry Dean Stanton as the detective, you know, going through the story. Because, you know, this is around Paris, you know, it could have been made before, around before Paris, Texas, and he was could have been a leading guy, you know. Um, but uh, I don't know. I don't know much of the, I mean, I've heard a lot of names thrown around, but I don't know really who was who. I was definitely seeing Kyle MacLachlan, even though he didn't even know him. Yeah, I don't even think yeah. Kyle was in <laughs> movies yet when he first originally conceived this. But yeah. has that, yeah, because again, there's so much, some of this stuff I almost think it is better to kind of explain it as far as in running threads and arcs than try to 
get the audience to piece Probably, this yeah. together. My, so it's like, he's very handsome. And we're talking about as far as all the breasts is, and it's almost relentless is so in the, um, the earlier script, there's just one female character. Basically, I think it's called the smiling woman and is more a character. He keeps seeing at a distance that is offering up some kind of, symbolic presence so in this one there's like a zillion different female characters and in each scene it always feels like that character is become is going to be really important and we're going to keep seeing her and then often we like never see this character again and in every single scene without fail he's apparently just beguilingly attractive our detective the girls will just like pull their top down or expose their breath and breasts in a very like nonchalant kind of way and then kiss him. Um, and that just kind of happens over and over and over again, along with these guys. Uh, and this is a, this gets confusing between the two drafts because he, some of the names shift around, but there's these, yeah, the dark city, like men in black, uh, who also are, you will often are their leader will be called a donut man. So there's, I guess, donut men leaving these, leading these little subgroups and they'll just kind of suddenly show up at a place and like electricity, there's a lot of electricity in this movie is obviously it would have been a huge um, just visual uh, theme, uh, but and they have cattle prods and it's like electricity goes crazy and they start electrocuting people and our detectives often like trying to stand on one foot, but will end up standing on like his head and if, if you lose consciousness, then you're just dead. And so part of what makes our detective so special is the way that he can maintain consciousness through all this. Uh, and also a running thing, which actually I was very impressed when this became a crucial, important thing by the end of the movie, but is the idea that the only way to make a donut man go away is to yell, your shoes are untied. And then it seems like whether or not his shoes actually are untied, he'll completely freak out, sometimes burst into flames, uh, maybe even die. But in any case, him and the, the guys in the black coats all go away and the survivors are left to pick up the pieces. Yeah. Uh, that other, the other weird plot point that comes in uh, there and is played out throughout is the idea that you have to, to keep consciousness, you have to cause yourself pain of pain. some kind. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty, that, those parts almost kept making me think of like Hellraiser or something, even though the tone could be nothing like it. Those parts just felt very, you know, a little bit of sadomasochism. Well, <laughs> and as far coming. as where we're actually at in the script, uh, chronologically, we, uh, Terry takes the detective to this like crappy motel or hotel and they get a room and the clerk's like, okay, but you have to share it with some knitters. <laughs> and they go up there and there's just like two women knitting, uh, which is what later gives them the idea to take the knitters, knitting needles and pin cushions. And then just, yeah, be like stabbing themselves in the legs and the neck to attain like alertness and this is one of those things where i can't say i i understood at all but it's like it's just interesting to think of what this must have meant to lynch the idea of like staying alert and that if you're not alert that's when you can cons uh basically is when you're going to get done in by the bad electricity that hank bartels and his donut men are Going, going, the city uh, <laughs> going back to Brian's idea, I think now that this is about David Lynch fell asleep once on a subway and something <laughs> terrible. So if you lose consciousness in the city, something terrible will happen to you. And that's what happened to you him. You know what? Uh, that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <So far off. laughs> uh, and now we cut back to Ronnie, 
uh, which again is the part that didn't really change as much between the two scripts. And I think because as far as when you're like talking about a story, uh, I guess I don't know how you guys felt, but the Ronnie storyline that was reading through the script up until we get back to like some of this Ronnie stuff, I was very much just like, wow, where is this movie going? Like this keeps just changing from scene to scene. Uh, his, I can very much feel what this movie would have been, but we introduce uh, some of our, our other important characters in the movie, Dr. Dan Pink and Dr. Bob Platinum, who live with a woman named Deborah. And they're in a kind of a very weird, but also I thought pretty funny, like it's not even like a menage a trois relationship. It's more like they're both dating her, but it's kind of like Dan's cooler than Bob. And they're sort of like, you know, it's like Bob had Bob had two nights in a row last week that he got to make out with you or whatever. Um, but they, it took me a while again to fully assess what's going on, but they they take they steal Ronnie from this hospital and bring him back to Deborah's house where they have like a secret lab in their basement and they have a chart on the wall that's labeled the average handsome man <laughs> and I guess they're trying to like takes people who are super deformed from the hospital and reconstruct them using their special surgeries to become, I guess, an average handsome man. Uh, and they like bicker over who gets to design his ears and stuff. And there's a whole, they actually reminded me of what it, I always think whenever I see somebody like making a, you know, like wig or, you know, werewolf suit of just how long it takes to put in all the individual hairs as they start doing that to his head until one of them's just like, let's just put on a wig where he gets his like red pompadour that we heard Lynch describe. Um, but they sort of, they're not very good. It even notes in the script, I'm trying to remember where it says that, but basically just that they're, <laughs> have a lot of enthusiasm, but maybe aren't great at this job. Uh, so Ronnie turns out kind of fucked up. Even they're like, oh, his ears aren't quite like at the same level. Um, and I guess, do we even note, Steve, any information about the actor? Because this is another thing where I think it was, he met this actor while trying to make this movie and the movie didn't get made, but then he ended up in, you know, Twin Peaks in some of his movies. Um, yeah, he um, he ended up, yeah, so in 1987, while he was trying to get this movie made, he um, he went to a Manhattan nightclub called Magoo's, and he saw Great Michael. Name. Yeah, Michael <laughs> Anderson, who is from Twin Peaks, as the man from another place, and Michael Anderson was dressed in gold and pulling a wagon at the time, and then Lynch immediately envisioned him as Ronnie Rocket. Pretty. And I much. guess for those who aren't uh, deep. Twin Peaks fans we're talking about. He's the little person who's in the kind of magic dream room and talks backwards. And I feel it was one of those things where even if you hadn't seen Twin Peaks, that was a thing that was so parodied and referenced that you kind of just mm -hmm. like they made fun of it on the Simpsons and other things. Like you just I think it of, became what dream sequences were. were. Well, that was the great, the, I feel where we are all introduced to Peter Dinklage was his great scene. Living in Oblivion. Living in Oblivion where he's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. have you ever dreamed about a dwarf? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, no, he worked uh, with them a number of times. Yeah. Even in Mulholland Drive. Home drive. Yeah. 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 Uh, but the, basically, this is kind of like a, a Pinocchio meets Frankenstein sequence with a lot of, as Brian kind of alluded to, extremely broad, weird comedy. I think Dan at some point just like wets his pants inexplicably. <laughs> um, but they bring Ronnie to life. He's kind of fucked up. Uh, they 
it's something goes wrong and he gets like juice too much juice which kind of leaves him in this permanent state for the rest of the movie where he's kind of setting you know you'll touch things and they'll explode uh and i love just this such a great strange plot device detail but the idea that he can only have power for 15 minutes so after 15 minutes he has to recharge is just an ongoing thing for Ronnie throughout the movie. And then, so when the movie, when this really clicked into my mind where I was like, all right, now I'm getting into this is when they realize they're like, what's wrong with this face? And they realize like, oh, he has acne. And they're like, oh my God, is Ronnie a teenager? Why he should be in school. And then the movie just really left turns where they like, we're going to fake his school records. And they take him into school to meet with like the principal. And the principal gives him an aptitude test and is like, wow, Ronnie's really great at math. Well, you know, meanwhile, meanwhile, Ronnie can like barely talk. There's also a funny sequence where they're getting him ready to go to school, where they're teaching him how to talk like, both talk and walk they've like painted little footprints on the ground for him to walk around uh and again imagining the guy from twin peaks doing all this you can it's almost it's funny because it's like the way he's described in the script is so much like the actor that it's almost hard for me to believe that like he didn't write this for him you know uh they just kind of meld that part, I mean, we, me and Brian were talking last. It also reminds me at that part of Edward Scissorhand because of the kind of they're bringing him into a high school. They're trying to be create a nuclear family around him. He's blank faced, but doing you know odd things. So it felt like Edward Scissorhand, Frankenstein, and then then later on Yahoo Serious. You know, <laughs> when, it, when it goes all the way, but yeah. but but, it, it but that part definitely comes through in this this weird. I almost wanted the whole school movie. Like it doesn't last no. very long, but I wanted to keep going. I, into I was weird. very much getting into it. Well, and the, I, yeah. I always love that kind of comedy too, where it's like uh, Mr. Murdo is the the guy they're talking to at the school. You know, clearly thinks Ronnie's weird, but not actually as weird as a normal person would. <laughs> uh, but where it's like whenever you'll ask Ronnie a question, Ronnie just starts saying the alphabet. Uh, and yeah. it's clearly there's something very wrong with Ronnie. Um, but, uh, oh man, just the script, it just keeps digging in deeper and deeper. Cause then it's like, cause really, if you asked me to describe what this movie was about very quickly, we still haven't even got to that part yet. The script, I don't know. I don't remember if we said before the script is 157 pages long. And again, for those who don't uh, work in the industry uh, or follow screenwriting that much usually a page a minute is what they think so this 157 would be a very very long movie um but we're, we're constantly cutting back to terry and the detective uh because terry says that his friend bill knows how to get into the inner city to find hank bartels but kind of just keep getting all this weird runarounds and having weird little side adventures we already kind of talked about a lot of that once they just go to a diner and that's when we first really see the donut man and his and the you know your shoes untied and all, all best that line in the movie is when the guy says life is a donut and they walk out yeah <laughs> i was like that's the most lynch moment in any lynch project i mean <laughs> this movie doesn't need to come out for that to be a t-shirt I'm just yeah saying. exactly life, life is a donut now that's the lynch version of time is a flat circle yeah <laughs> uh but so and then we cut back to ronnie at school ronnie's also been drawing the weird we see him doodling 
the drawing that he showed the detective at the very beginning of the movie and starting to increasingly say weird cryptic things about like reverse the electricity and stuff. Uh, we, we see him in school. Again, the school stuff, I, that stuff was really making me laugh where it's like the teacher, Mr. Murdo just really thinks Ronnie's great at math. And he's like, Ronnie, why don't you show us how to do it? And he goes up to the blackboard and just starts drawing his nonsense symbols. And the students are all just like, ah, not again. This apparently just happens every day. Um, he's always, I think there's like the school, you know, intercoms go off and he picks up feedback and stuff sparks and explodes. Uh, we see him walking down the hall after school's out, trying to find an outlet to plug in so he doesn't run out of power. And there's no outlets in this hallway. And he ends up going down these stairs and stumbles upon a band setting up. Uh, and this is what I was getting to before for the listeners. Brian's favorite subgenre, Battle of Bands movie. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I feel we really reach the premise of the movie. Needs more Michael Winslow, though. As well. uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is Ronnie joining this band. Uh, and the band has two managers, Mr. Barco and Mr. Green, though mainly Mr. Barco. I think it's Mr. Bucko in the original script. Uh, and kind of the basic idea is he goes down there and he's plugging in while the band's setting up and the like lead singer guitarist of the band Johnny is also looking for an outlet and kind of ends up plugging directly into Ronnie as though Ronnie was an extension hmm. cord uh, and when he starts playing his music uh, Ronnie uh, like I'm trying to think how you describe it it's almost like the you know Peter Frampton vocal or whatever you call that thing where he you know oh yeah kind of mouth words into and it would come out through his guitar but it's kind of like Ronnie is working like uh you know guitar pedal or some kind of filter you would put on it and making strange horrible sounds that uh everyone's really into that always seem to leave him Ronnie in horrible pain and just kind of thrashing around on the floor I want to hear a little bit more about Brian's love of Battle of the Band movies, though. Uh, like, were you excited when we get to this band part of this script now? I mean, definitely interested, you know? It was just like, but because everything is so, you just have no idea where it's going to go. I was like, okay, how long are we going to stay in this world? Because I was still kind of like, wait, isn't this supposed to be a noir detective yeah. movie? What, <laughs> what happened to that stuff? Which obviously we know we get back to later, but this early on in the script i'm like okay this is ronnie's stuff now he's going to join a band um yeah you know i mean i just like we we have recently talked about love lines on, on pure <laughs> cinema which is what i was talking about with michael winslow which is a movie based completely around a battle of bands contest and some other things so um i just love that movie but in general i like movies about bands that that are finding their key elements you know I, I don't know why but i was thinking about ladies and gentlemen the fabulous stains a little bit too with this <laughs> like i just was like seeing if ronnie rocket opened for them or something i don't know there was something going on there so i'm <laughs> sort of into that idea but the other thing i kept having trouble with and not trouble in a bad way but in a way where i'm like god i really would love to see uh lynch's interpretation i mean you were talking about blocks of text you know and that's for me, that's a lot of where Lynch lives in the in the uh, set design and production design of his movies. And I'm sort of trying to read into what I think that would be, but there's no way that I could really interpret even what Ronnie looks like. I have a sort of an idea, but I don't really know. But the other thing that he's so great with is sound. So mm. sound in terms of industrial background noise as music, sound as 
the way people talk, the cadence in which they speak sound as in this case, Ronnie screams and makes all kinds of noises and, and just, just like his screams are musical. I'm like, what does that sound like? I was just trying to figure no, that I out. I agree that that is the mm-hmm. area of this movie uh, where I do most wish that I could just see what that would have been. Um, you know, who's to say how good or bad it would have turned out? I don't know, but you know, it's, it's, it, it definitely would have been an unknown. I should also say, I shouldn't skip over, even though we kind of summarized in arcs, going back to the detective storyline, because we just get some really zany tangents where like the detective goes to see Ronnie's parents. We also never really know why he's doing any of this. He saw Ronnie in the hospital, Ronnie doodled, you know, weird designs, and he's gone off onto the inner city for what we don't really know. He's trying to find Hank but more almost like a video game way where I have to get to the center of the city and defeat Hank, but we don't really know what that has to do with Ronnie, but he goes to visit Ronnie's parents uh, who do not seem to like Ronnie. They're like, Ronnie was always getting into trouble. Uh, the dad sort of like <laughs> completely freezes in the middle of the conversation and like falls over on the floor at one point. Ronnie's sister, Cecilia comes down and is like, wants him to come upstairs and listen to music with her. And the dad's like, your music's horrible. But when we actually get up there and she puts on the record, it's swing music, which, but I guess, you know, if this was in the twenties or whatever, that, that would, that would have been the new, that your music is just noise that parents were shaking their fist about. Um, This is where we get some more of the revealing her breasts and wanting to kiss her. The dad comes in. And rubbing. Lots of rubbing. Lots lots of rubbing. Oh yeah. Very strategic rubbing. Right. Cause she has like ointment and Mm -hmm. then and this whole little thing where she needs him to like hold onto her and kind of tip her over to the side. And then once he gets her in that position, now she wants him to rub her breasts some more. Um, the dad comes to the door and somehow maybe, maybe he smells the ointment. I'm forgetting the exact detail where he's basically like, are you rubbing my daughter's breasts in there? <laughs> he's like, I'm going to call the police. And she's like, quick, you can get out in the attic where my grandpa is with the nurse. There's like an escape door and he gets up there, but there isn't an escape door. And the nurse is just like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but then the nurse is like, do you want to kiss me real hot? And the dick was like, I don't, I got to get out of this house. And she goes, Hey, Look at this, and shows him her breasts. Um, <laughs> that part reminds me of Eyes Wide Shut. How he's everywhere Tom Cruise goes. Somebody wants to make out with him or sleep with him. It's it's like the the Freudian dream kind of uh, yeah. setup. Just- well, and also I was gonna say like that opening bits of the scene feels very much like the Eraserhead dinner stuff. Just very awkward and strange. And especially yeah. you know that one the the parts that don't work in this and there's like the swaying or the dad falling down are the, the one part I've watched Razorhead so many times and I always show it to people but if there's one part that like takes me out doesn't mean it's not good but I just come out of the movie for a second it's when she has the the girl that he's dating or the you know the mother of his child starts having uh you know just starts shaking and having a fit and it just feels so it feels a specific thing that Lynch is into that just doesn't necessarily always register to an audience. And there's and a lot of that in this, in, this. in part yeah, exactly. because that's of the elect- idea of electricity. There's a lot mm-hmm. of people getting electrocuted. Yeah. Ronnie, every time they plug him in with the rock band, he's just like, poor guy's just like thrashing around on the stage, hitting his head on the floor and stuff. Yeah, no, that definitely was something I, I just felt bad for him through most of the script. But, but back to the breast rubbing, if we can, for a second. <laughs> that to me, again, there's something about 
you know, you know, he would never explain it. There's no way you could get him to go. What happened? What, you know, but that feels like maybe an early relationship thing where he was involved with somebody who was maybe a little bit more experienced than he was or something. I'm totally speculating, but like suddenly, you know, she was doing things and asking him to do things. And he was so kind of like, you know, innocent kid that was just kind of like, oh, okay, I guess we'll do that. And so that became sort of his idea of what sex is, is like, you enter a room with somebody that you, I guess you're ostensibly into or they're into you and they ask you to do stuff and they start taking their top off. Like that legitimately seems to be a thing that happens enough in this script and some other movies that you're just like, this must be an ongoing thing. This must've happened to him a couple of times. Maybe, I don't know why I'm choosing to psychoanalyze <laughs> yeah, well, Lynch. And those parts don't work at all in Elephant Man. <laughs> just the total zero in Elephant Man. <laughs> Uh, well, no, that was what I was kind of getting at before. I was describing it as though it was an Austin Powers joke, but I don't think Lynch is doing it to be super funny. But it's the idea, you know, I feel like in like a bad script, you'd read it and like two girls expose their breasts in two different scenes. You're kind of like, yeah, yeah, I get it, writer. You know, like <laughs> you just want to see some boobs or you're not even paying attention to the fact that this has happened more than once. The fact that this just keeps happening over and over again, it does become a thing. And you have, you're like forced to start to be like, well, this is absurd, but yeah, why? Why is this in this movie? What mm -hmm. is he? Uh, I mean, it's so repetitive to your point, Brian. Now you're just making me assume that at some point when he was young, some girl was just like, hey, look, it's my mm -hmm. boob. And it yeah. like shattered his little 10 year old mind or something. I think so. We're going to hit pause right there and continue our conversation in part two of our conversation about David Lynch's Ronnie Rocket with our special guests, Pure Cinema Podcast. Uh, we invite you to follow us on social media if you would like more content from us. You can follow us on Twitter at NeverMadeFilm and Instagram at BestMoviesNeverMade. We also encourage you to download the Electric Now app. So you can watch video of our podcast and all the podcasts on our network, like the 430 movie and Inglorious Trexperts, to name just two. Uh, we want to thank everyone at Electric Surge Network, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steve Scarlatta saying, we won't see you at the movies. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.